the book of John, and we're going to be looking at chapter 8. Um, I, I know some of you sort of like horror movies. I hate them. I mean, per- personally, I don't even like really suspenseful movies. Uh, some of you like that like hit of adrenaline you get when watching those movies. I just hate I don't even like roller coasters for that reason. I hate being scared. But when you think about horror movies or really suspenseful movies, they, they, they sort of play with their emotions by an overarching motif. They use and play with light and darkness, don't they? They're always playing with this whole idea of light and darkness. And when the darkness comes or when night comes, you know something bad is going to happen. Now, in, in a sense, when we watch sort of those movies... We can kind of distance ourselves, like we are like that, that. That's pretend. But you don't even have to be a Christian to look out in the world and realize that there really is darkness and evil and hardships. I mean, it's sort of novel right now to even point out the various things in our culture and our world which are evil and wrong and corrupt and dark. And yet, it's really easy to point out the darkness outside of ourselves. It's another thing to talk about the darkness within. So some of you know the, the uh, young adult uh, book that then turned into a movie, A Wrinkle in Time. Some of you might know that. Well, the, the whole point is that, that there is this evil. There is this antagonist in the book, and it's called It. And it slowly corrupts men and women and children and and deforms them, really, and discourages them. And and when you read it or you watch the movie, um, but you should read it, um, because I'm one of those guys who's like, oh, the book's always better than the movie. Um, It's described, this it is, described as darkness. And yet, when we talk about darkness, it's really easy to point out the darkness outside of ourselves. Oh, but... When we talk about the darkness within, that's a whole nother thing. And so in many ways, we don't like to talk about the darkness within. But what does push back the darkness? On Friday night, I took my life in my own hands, and I went camping in my backyard with my four kids. (laughs) And at one point, I had to take one of my kids outside the tent to go to the bathroom, and it was pitch dark. So how did we push back the darkness? We turned on the lights. We we took a flashlight. That's how you push back the darkness. You turn on the lights. But how do you push back the darkness within your own heart? How do you push back the darkness within your own soul? What sort of power grid would you need to tap into to push back the darkness that you hide that you protect, that you don't even want your spouse or your best friend to know about? What what sort of light would be powerful enough to conquer that level of darkness? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So if you will, go with me to John chapter 8. The big idea, which I sort of try to give to you every week, is this, and it'll be on the screen behind me. And it's simply this. It's in the form of a question. In life, there are only two paths, light and darkness. 
Which will you choose? Chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to them, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will, not, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will you kill yourself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have, been, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but, you, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. We'll stop there. Now, just as a sort of, just a a caveat, um, you, you notice that I didn't say anything about verse 53 down to verse 11. I skipped it. And in most of your Bibles, if you look, there's a footnote that sort of brackets that section of the Bible. And I know it's many of your favorite stories, but it's bracketed and basically it says the earliest and best manuscripts do not include that section in the Gospel of John. And actually, they come, when they do show up, they show up much later, around the 7th or 8th century. But we have manuscripts in the 2nd and 3rd century. And so what's really going on is it looks like, and there's sort of a a scholarly consensus that as it relates to this story, that this was not original to John, but came up later. And so um, we're going to skip it. We're not going to look at it. If you have questions about this, just talk to me after. That's a long story, a long tangent, but I would love to engage and talk about why we're not including this in this portion of John. Well, that aside, as John 7 closed, Jesus, like I said last week, Jesus as at the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a seven-day week, um, seven, day, um, the, uh, seven days uh, where they were f- celebrating every day in this festival. And there were two kind of broad 
ceremonies that happened. Last week, we considered the first, which was this ceremony where, where the high priest would pour out water. And it's no coincidence that Jesus, as the high priest did this, kind of says that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink living water. Kind of pointing back to Jesus as the fulfillment of uh, water from the rock that God provided for God's people in the wilderness. And now, Jesus, we see this in verse 20, Jesus is in the treasury. He's in the court of women. And it's there that Jesus now makes this amazing claim that he is the light. So we had this ceremony that happened, this ceremony of pouring out of water, but there was a second ceremony which was called the the ceremony of illumination. And what would happen is every night when darkness began to come, you had in this treasury, this court of women, you had four huge pillars. Think of huge torches. And so a, a priest would come with a, a huge jar of oil and he would take a ladder and he would climb up, descend up to this big torch, fill it with oil, and then light this wick. And he'd do it four times with these four huge torches. And when he would do this, you know, light would just pour out of the temple, light up pretty much the entire temple and parts of Jerusalem. Like, this, this act would literally push back the darkness in the city. And then the celebration would begin. People would dance, they'd have their own torches, and they'd dance, dance into dawn. Uh, so some of you have maybe been to a Jewish wedding, and you, you've seen the festivities, the dancing. I mean, that's the sort of scene here. It's just dancing and celebration and joy all out until pretty much the morning sun rises. And really what that celebration is, this, this, this celebration of, of illumination, it was pointing back to God's provision for God's people in the wilderness when he provided, when he was the pillar of light. You remember that? Remember that scene? God descends as a pillar of light and says, when I go out, you're going to follow me. If you, but when I kind of hover over, when the, the light, the pillar of light stays over me, you stay and you camp and you just wait for me. And so this celebration was a celebration, a reminder of God's provision for God's people in the wilderness that he guided them. He he provided light for them. He pushed back the darkness of the wilderness and guided them slowly and inevitably to the promised land. And so verse 12 opens up with this amazing promise, right? Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And so in, in John, in the Gospel of John, we have John, he uses all of these Old Testament images and he pulls them in and applies them to Jesus. Do, do you remember John 1? John says that, that Jesus is the, the better and the truer tabernacle where God's presence resides with God's people. And then at the end of chapter 7, he says, uh, Jesus is the, 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 the truer and better Water that, that spilled out of that rock that Jesus is where you can find your spiritual thirst quenched. And now here Jesus is saying that that pillar of fire in the Old Testament, well, Jesus is that pillar where you, where you can find uh, light and where you can find protection and where you can find guidance. Jesus is the fulfillment of. Jesus was that light in the wilderness that protected and guided God's people. And then we just, as amazing as that claim, claim is, you just kind of keep reading, and Jesus says that I am the light, but if anyone follows me, 
He will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So in the wilderness, God's people are told to to wait, right? To, To wait for God to move, and then God would illuminate their steps. That they were to follow God, and God would provide for them. No no matter how dark, no matter how late, that fire illuminated each and every step of God's people until they arrived at the promised land. They didn't need to fear darkness. God reassured them by that light that he was with them, protecting and guiding them. And Jesus is saying the same is true now for those who follow Jesus. All people who follow Jesus... There's a sort of similar benefit. Jesus pushes back the darkness in our world and in our lives. So here Jesus, what he's doing is, and Peter uses this language um, in his letter, that that Jesus is calling people out of darkness and he's calling them into his marvelous light. He is illuminating the path to light. But it's not just a path to light. You see it. He's playing with light and life. He's saying that the path of light is the same thing. It's synonymous with the path of life. He's offering a way out of darkness and a way into light. But but as amazing as that promise is, and we're going to kind of look at this as there's the promise, and we just saw this, but we're going to see that there's also a problem. There's There's going to be a PPP, and it's not the... Paytech protection plan, but there's a PPP in our text too. The promise is, if anyone follows Jesus as the light, believes that he is the light, you will walk in light and not in darkness. That's the the promise, but there's a problem, and it starts in verse 13, and it's kind of the the kind of the bulk, the the very middle of our section. Um, in, In many places in John, what you have is Jesus makes this amazing claim, this this amazing promise, and people just They just don't get it. And so they begin to debate Jesus. They ask questions of Jesus. They just, it just kind of goes over their head. And that's what we have here. Four times in which Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, it just goes straight over their head. Some of you might have a study Bible that um, kind of illuminates Jesus' words in red. I think in that sense, it's actually helpful to see because you see the dialogue that's going on here. Because there's four kind of, uh, questions that people have, religious leaders and Pharisees and the Jews and kind of bystanders, f- f- four questions that they have that really illuminate their ignorance and blindness. So, so we see there in verse 13, the, the Pharisees, they, they come and they push back on Jesus and they basically say, Jesus, you say that you're the light of the world, but you're one person. And everyone knows if you read your Old Testament, if you want to make such a claim, you need two witnesses. And so basically the Pharisees say, your testimony is, is inadmissible in the court of law. We're going to throw it out because you're just making this claim and there's no other witness to make this claim. And basically Jesus responds and says, I am making this claim. I actually can make this claim by myself, but the Father also makes this claim. He testifies that I really am who I say I am. Then down in verse 19, secondly, they ask, who is your father? And here I think what's going on is they're thinking strictly on earthly. They're like, who's your father? Joseph? Like, is that who you're talking about when it comes to your father? Joseph? Like, we know him. Is that who you're talking about? They're just really confused. 
And Jesus says, if you knew who my father was, you'd know me. Actually, what he says is, if you know me, you'd know my father. Meaning, if you know the son of God, you'd know father God. Then if you go on the sort of third dialogue, verse 22, Jesus explains that he's going away. And then they ask, are are you going to kill yourself? They just don't understand. And Jesus responds with, you are not thinking heavenly-minded enough. And then the fourth kind of dialogue, verse 25, that really exposes their ignorance, verse 25, they ask finally this sort of million-dollar question, the question that they really are trying to figure out, which is, who are you? And I love Jesus' response. He responds like a parent responds to a child's incessant, annoying questions. He basically says, I've told you who I am. I've told you from the beginning. Could I be any more clear? Why aren't you listening? And so what we see in this middle section, this sort of dialogue, this back and forth conversation, a sort of problem rises to the surface. Jesus gives this amazing promise that he is the light of the world. And they're blind. They're ignorant. They're confused. It goes way over their head. They just don't understand. Jesus spells it out in verse 23. He says, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. They can't perceive the light. And it's clear Jesus tells them why they can't perceive the light. They can't perceive the light because they're still in darkness. Verse 24 says the same thing. In in other words, he says they are still in the darkness of sin. Jesus says, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am, you will indeed die in your sins. They, they think that they understand everything. They, they've got the best seminary education. They, they, they've got the best pedigree. They've got the best morals. And yet, Jesus reminds them, they're ignorant. They've missed it. They're still in darkness. Hey, have you ever driven a car and fog like descends on a hill? And it's like terrifying because you like can't even see where you're going? Well, that's spiritually how Jesus is describing them. They're just, their minds, their souls, their hearts are perpetually in the fog of blindness. Paul, I think, captures this in his letter to Corinth. He writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says in chapter 2, the man without the spirit does not accept the things that comes from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. About a year ago, I was talking to someone in our church, and he was telling me everything he does for his work. He was an engineer, and he was explaining what he does every day at Boeing. And I remember he was using English words. Like, he was using sentences that technically I understood, but I didn't have a clue about what he was talking about. Like, like I took one science class. It just went way over my head. That's what's going on with Jesus. He gives all these, he's using words that they understand, but it's just going way over their heads because they're in darkness. That's the condition of humanity. Born in the upside down. 
born in darkness. And left to ourselves, we can't understand the light. Now, by way of application, this might sound discouraging, but let me just give you an encouragement to us all. Whether you're a parent, grandparent, aunt, uncle, friend, coworker, your job as a Christian, your calling, is not to help people transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Your, your job and calling is not to make people understand the light. That's over your pay grade, parent. It's over your pay grade, grandparents. Your job is to put the beauty and glory and majesty and light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in word and deed before your children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews and friends and co-workers and neighbors consistently, courageously, and clearly and let God bring them from darkness to light. Only Jesus is the light and only Jesus expels and conquers the darkness within the human heart. The sort of bulk of this middle section I think it really does put our two paths before us in my big idea. There is the path of darkness and there is the path of light. And sadly, what we learn in this middle section is many people choose to stay on the path of darkness. And we see it all around. I mean, I saw this this past week. I was literally writing this sermon, preparing this sermon, and I got a phone call from someone randomly in saying that they're from El Paso, Texas, and that I received a package from Mexico. I, for a second I thought, is this, like a, is this from Jason or something? And I was like, what's going on here? But then er, like 30 seconds later, I was like, oh, this is a scam. And I love messing with people who try to scam me. I just love it. It's like my favorite pastime. So he was trying to communicate over and over again the seriousness of this. And I said, oh, this is really serious. You're right. This is really seriousness. And then I paused for a second for sort of dramatic effect. And I said, you're right. But before I take the seriousness of this situation, can I tell you about the seriousness of your sin before a holy God and that you're going to go to hell if you don't put your faith and trust in And I started like, rehearsing this really intense gospel. <laughs> Click. <laughs> Just as a complete aside, if you're like... I need to get better at evangelism and practicing how to preach the gospel. Do it on them, all right? What do I care? But here's the point, I think. People, he, he wanted access to my bank account or whatever he wanted eventually. I don't, I'm not sure. We didn't get that far. But, but what he didn't want is the light of the gospel that I was seeking to offer him. And that's the tragedy of this, that many, many choose darkness. But, but, but I think we just apply this to maybe non-Christians, our world, and say, oh yeah, there's light and darkness, which is very, very true. But there's a sense in which, even if you're a Christian here this morning, all of us, in various ways, and in little ways, maybe even some big ways, choose the darkness. And often I think we do this because light and illumination of the soul of your heart is really, really scary. Have you ever not checked your bank account just because you just didn't want to know how much was in there? Ignorance is bliss. 
Well, I think sometimes we don't want the, the light of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to shine in our hearts because it ain't pretty. And light exposes darkness. Or, in one sense, light exposes whatever's hidden. Right? You walk into a dark room, and all of a sudden you, you're like, oh, it looks really clean, and then you turn on the light and you hear the cockroaches fly away. Well, that is, spiritually speaking, all of our hearts, right? We all have, spiritually, cockroaches in our hearts. And when the light of the gospel shines in our hearts, we instantly go, God, you can touch a lot of my hearts, a lot of chambers of my soul, but there's this part of my life, this part of my soul. I don't want you messing with that. I don't want you exposing that. It'd be too painful. And so we hide, we, we protect, we're like, well, the safest thing for me to do is, is to maybe not be known. So, so sometimes community or friendship, deep friendship, can be really scary because we're like, oh, they might be able to expose things in my life that maybe my best friend and my spouse doesn't know about. So, so, so we hide, we protect, we, we minimize, we, we put our, we're like perpetually on that first date, we put all our best qualities and hide our worst qualities back there. And we do that with God. We do that with other people. We promise God, if you work on these nice areas, but please don't work with these areas of my life. And I think it's not just, it's not just sin. It's also trauma. It can be pain done to us. We think, oh yeah, I, God, I, I really don't want you to mess with this area of my life. Years ago, I was talking with, with someone and they were explaining and they, they had communicated to me a while ago that they had trauma in their background with their parents. And they said, no, this is great. I take a pill a day and I don't have to deal with all the trauma of my past. So we do various things in order to kind of cope with our past. And we don't want it to be exposed. We don't want the light of God's truth to shine too brightly on that because we're not sure what would happen. Because of shame, because of fear, we hide, we protect, we minimize various aspects of our heart. And we say, God, I'm sorry, but not there. And yet, do you see the tenderness in Jesus here? The goodness of Jesus, the power and beauty of the light of the gospel is this, that God in Christ is not afraid of your darkness. He's not embarrassed of your weakness. He's not, he, de- he wants not to distance himself from your pain, your wounds, your trauma. Now, how do I know that? Because in light of this problem, there's a provision. Look, look down in verse 28. Look at this amazing provision that we have. So Jesus said to them, when, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John uses this, this language often, this idea of being lifted up, which is sort of theological shorthand for the crucifixion. And he's saying, when I'm crucified on a cross and then exalted in the resurrection, vindicated in the resurrection, and then ascend, when when that happens, when Jesus 
dies on a cross for sinners, then you will know in the lifted up in the cross, in the humiliation of the cross, then you will know that I am the light that conquers darkness. If you want to see what light looks like, if you want to see the glory of Jesus and what light looks like bursting out into the darkness of this world, look at the cross. Look at the crucifixion of Jesus. See what God does for sinners in sending his son to die in their place so that darkness flees by way of the night. John's telling us that if you want to know what light looks like, you got to look at the cross. The humiliation of the cross. But as you see the humiliation of the cross, you see the exaltation and glory and the light of Jesus. I mentioned earlier a wrinkle in time. Well, darkness finally is conquered. Sorry, spoiler alert, but the book is really old, so if you haven't read it yet, you're probably not going to read it. Darkness is conquered by light. Interesting. And it's the light of love, particularly the light of love for a little girl for her little brother. But in a far greater way, the darkness of sin is conquered by the love of Jesus as the light of the world dampens the darkness of sin. I mean, just think that the entire Bible is framed in light and darkness. Genesis 1, light bursts onto the scene. Then Genesis 3, darkness tries to cover the light. And then in the crucifixion, we have darkness fleeing. And then, do you know how your, your Bibles end? The book of Revelation tells us, John tells us, that light eventually, fundamentally, fully, finally, will conquer darkness once and for all. This is the ending of the story. When Jesus returns, there will be no more night, which is meaning there will be no more darkness. You won't need a light or a lamp. You won't even need a sun, for the Lord God will give them light. See, the penalty of sin has been conquered by Jesus when he is lifted on the cross And yet, as we await Jesus' full and final return, we all know that there's still indwelling sin in all of us. That there still is darkness in all of our hearts. And yet, Jesus will usher in the kingdom fully, finally. He will consummate the kingdom, and darkness will fully, finally, and forever be conquered. But I think sometimes when we think about the darkness within our own hearts right now, our own sin, the trauma of our past and pain, we think, oh, that's the very thing I need to hide from God. And we, we frame it, I think, theologically. We say, God is holy. I am not holy. God is perfect. I'm imperfect. And so every time I'm imperfect, every time I sin, every weakness I have, well, God in his holiness must sort of repel or kind of be like kind of embarrassed and kind of flee because I am a great sinner. We think in terms of that, right? The, the holiness of God cannot dwell with sinners like me. That's not how the Bible portrays this. I'm going to give you one example. But this is the amazing thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just think about Isaiah 6, that great... I'm giving you this because you all know this story, right? Isaiah, the, the prophet, has this amazing vision of him and he goes into the very throne room of God, Isaiah 6. And he's there and he sees God. He sees light and glory bursting from the throne room of God. And instantly, what does Isaiah 
feel does he go oh this is great i feel great i mean i'm like the only faithful one i'm like the only one preaching good news i'm i'm good i'm in heaven no Isaiah experiences in a deeper way than he's ever experienced in his entire life his sin and brokenness and darkness. He, he says this, I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips. God is holy. Isaiah, not. But what happens? An angel flies from the throne room of God with a flaming coal and touches Isaiah's lips as a symbolic representation of his atonement, his salvation. You see, Isaiah's very sin, his very weakness, his very not-like-godness, was the very mechanism to which God moved towards him, not away from him. Do you see that? It wasn't the, his sin that actually kept God away. It was his very sin and his confession of that sin that made God move towards him. This is why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so amazing. Because in our sin, in our brokenness, in our shame, it's not like, oh, I clean myself up. I'm, then, once I have my life a little tidier, then and only then will God move towards me. No, it's the exact opposite. It's because of your sin and the confession of that sin and the kind of the humiliation of that sin that God moves towards you and atones your sin. The reason why God moves towards you is not because you're a saint. It's for the very reason that you're a sinner, that God moves towards you. Jesus is the light. He's the light of the world. And he says back in verse 12 that if you follow him, you're never going to walk in darkness. But you're going to have a fuller life, a, a more abundant life, a truer life, maybe a messier life. But you'll know that darkness, that, that, that darkness of fearing that God isn't with you, the, the darkness of fearing that God has rejected you, the, the, the darkness of feeling that God might not be present with you, that fear, that darkness will be expelled because you know Especially when you just keep looking time and time again at the risen Christ, you realize that you don't need to fear that darkness. For Jesus is your life. Two paths, darkness and light. Look how verse 30 ends. I just want to point this out because it's so encouraging. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So let me just ask you, Are you walking in the light? Are you trusting Jesus to guide you? As God's people were in the wilderness, it probably didn't make sense for them. Like, um, I should be sleeping in. Why are we leaving right now? Pillar of fire. Sorry, it's four in the morning. That's not. I'm a, I'm a night person. I mean, I'm, uh, and yet they said, no, we're going to trust that you are the light. And where you go, I'm going. Are you walking in the light? The light of Jesus Christ and following him and opening up your lives and saying, God, whatever darkness in, I want you to shine the light of the gospel there because I want to be more like you. Two paths, darkness and light. Which one do you choose? Let's pray.
God, we, um, we are so grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, and all of his, his redemptive accomplishments. And we are so grateful that, that even when we think about the last few years, discouragement, not being able to gather sometimes, sickness, illness, fears. But we're, we're thankful that even in the midst of all of that, confusion, one thing has been clear, that you are the light of the world, Lord, and that there is life in you. So, Lord, we pray that you would encourage us to seek you with all that we have and all that we are, that we might, in a truer way and a fuller way, walk with you in the light of life. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.